Psalm 37 and verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Father, we pray a blessing on Your Word. This morning we ask, Holy Spirit, that You will teach us, and especially today, Lord, I ask that You would refresh tired hearts and You would encourage those who are discouraged and that You will bring us to a place of joy and a place of of peace and trust in You, Lord, recognizing that You are our great God and Father. And as we say, Lord, we believe our God saves. Jesus, You save. And we trust You for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is part two, really, of a two-part discussion that we started Wednesday night. But I strongly want to encourage you, if you did not hear the teaching on Wednesday night, to go back and listen to it at some point. Because we deal head-on, Psalm 37, 38, 39, we deal head-on with an issue that I think is difficult for Christians today. And that's specifically, how do I live my life righteously in a wicked generation? Especially knowing that I'm a sinner. And and that's the rub there. There are a lot of Christians who would say, you know, I don't like what I see going on in the world, but I'm a sinner too, so how can I say anything about it? I just got to tolerate because I know I'm a sinner and I'm saved, so uh, these other people who are messing up and doing these things. And, And it is a difficult challenge for a believer in Christ. How am I to live? And how am I to function knowing I've been saved by grace? Really the question is, how do I practice righteousness in a world that's practicing wickedness? And we get into that in depth on Wednesday night. I encourage you to hear that again. Go back and listen. But coming back to the question this morning, how do we live righteously in a wicked generation, I think of Paul's words in Philippians 2.14, where he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So let me ask you, do you ever just get exasperated living in a crooked and perverse generation? Do you ever just find yourself O'Reilly'd up? I call it the O'Reilly'd up factor. Because that's the issue. If you've ever seen the show, you know, you open up the news. And it's so easy these days to just get tense and frustrated and worried consternation can start to seep into your thinking, your spiritual life, to where you're just saying, it's just not worth it. This world's going to hell in a handbasket. And I I don't know what to do with it. We find ourselves fired up over these things. News reports like this one. Controversy in New Jersey. A billboard looms over a busy section of Route 22 in Hillside. On a dark gray background, the gold letters read, My life, my death, my choice. And at the bottom of it, there's a website. The ad sponsor is www.finalexitnetwork.org. Final Exit Network. In the past six years, this group claims to have assisted over 50 people a year in taking their own lives. 
I look at this and it makes me angry. Because I know, I'm sure, I'm convinced there are people involved in Final Exit Network who think they're doing the compassionate thing. Who think they're doing the helpful thing. And it is a culture of death. And we're seeing this more and more. From the womb to the grave, we are seeing this propagation of a culture of death. And it makes me angry. (laughs) Or you go to the theater and you get two and a half hour sermons on global climate change. I was going to get away. And here I'm being bombarded with preaching about global climate change in movies like Avatar. I already ripped on Avatar before. I'm not going to do it again. But I'll tell you this, and there may be those of you who disagree with me completely on this. That's okay. We can disagree. I'm okay if you're wrong. (laughs) Climate change is, in my personal opinion, a smokescreen for the real issue. What is that? The progression of earth worship. That's what is at the bottom line. Some might say, no, 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 it's just about saving the planet. Hey, you don't have the power to save the planet, my friend. God does. But you don't. It doesn't mean we shouldn't care. It doesn't mean we shouldn't take care or, or, or be you know, conscious about what we're doing in this world. However, we are seeing a progression of earth worship like no time, in, at least in this country's history. Or perhaps you heard about the subtle change that took place on the top of the 555-foot spire there in Washington, D.C., the Washington Monument. For 120 years, that spire has stood, since it was completed, with writing in Latin on the top, on the cap of the Washington Monument, there in Washington, D.C. And there's a rule, there's a a law on the books, you cannot build a building taller than the Washington Monument, there in D.C. Why? Because on the top, on the cap, was written, Laos Deus, Praise be to God. And in 2007, that was removed. Another cap was put in its place with no words. And I, I hear about stuff and I just go, ah! You know why they removed it? They didn't want to offend anybody. Because there happened to be several 555 foot tall Latin speaking giants in America <laughs> who would see that and say, hey, what's that doing up there? This stuff takes me off. I call that the presumption of unbelief. Propagation of a culture of death, progression of earth worship, a presumption of unbelief going on in our world, or as I shared midweek, you pick up a magazine to discover the return of a favorite Christian artist, musician, who after a seven-year hiatus has now come back and, and is coming out with a new album this summer and is also coming out. Jennifer Knapp is a lesbian. This is what she's just shared in uh, Christianity Today about a month ago. And I read that and I just went, "Ah." it's the proliferation of perversion. This is going on. And what upset me about that, I talked about it quite a bit on Wednesday night, so I won't do that right now. But what upset me about it is I'm looking at that, and and in addition to a concern for her, who I've never met her, but I loved her music, But there's a concern, what is this going to do in the church? What are Christians who love her music going to do with this? Now that throws us back into the whole thing about, well, we should be tolerant because we're all sinners and we've all fallen short of God's glory. We're all saved by His grace, so she happens to choose that. That's, you know, oh well. And these conversations are going on, and we see perversion on the rise. I did share Wednesday night that the amount of money spent in internet pornography 
It is a multi-billion dollar industry. The amount of money spent is more than the combination of Microsoft, Yahoo, Google, uh, Netflix, Apple, and I think there's one more. Combined, more money is spent on internet pornography than those companies make. It's astounding. Proliferation of perversion. Or on the other side of things. I got an email with the following prophecy of judgment from a sister who said, I don't even know what to do with this, so I'm just sending it to you to take a look at. Excerpt of a prophecy of Linda Newkirk that she claims to have received June 10th, 2010. Mark my word in this, for if those in, in the Gulf states... She's talking about the Gulf states and the oil spill being judgment of God. For those in the Gulf states and in these states who are called by my name do not repent, I shall send storms, tsunamis, earthquakes, I shall send famine and disease until I have eradicated this evil out of my face. I have set my face against these Gulf coastal states, and I shall not be satisfied until I have destroyed this great evil. The time of great woes has begun in America. Woe, woe, woe to you, O America, the blank of the world. Woe to you pornographers, for if you will not repent, you will burn in the fiery chastisements. Woe to you adulterers, for if you will not repent, you will be destroyed in the lake of fire. Woe to you preachers, who do not have my spirit, who preach for gain, who lead my people astray, for if you do not repent, you'll have your place in the fires of outer darkness. Woe to you covetous, you liars, you workers of witchcraft, for if you do not repent, your souls shall be required of you in the fiery chastisements. Woe to you who love this wicked world and what's in it, and you do not love me. For if you do not repent, your soul will perish in the burning flames. Oh, you mockers and scorners. Woe, woe, woe. To you mockers and scorners. I'm sorry. For if you do not repent of this great evil, your soul will languish in the flames of correction for a very long time. And you know what? I'm seeing that, and I believe personally this is more of the promulgation of false prophecy. Wow. Pastor, did you just say that that was a false prophecy? I absolutely did, and I believe it is. Jesus said in Matthew 24:11, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. You read something like that and you go, oh, Wow! I mean, judgment, it's here. The woes have begun. You know, there are several problems inherent in that prophecy. I read all of it. It's like six pages of six-point font. (laughs) Reading all this. Now, I believe a judgment is coming. The Bible is clear about that. It's called the day of the Lord or the time of Jacob's trouble. And it is specifically a seven-year tribulation period that is ordained for the world, that has been declared, that is coming. But it's not just on America. As much as we love to bash our country, it's not just on America. It is a worldwide tribulation that the Bible proclaims is coming. But this particular prophecy indicates that the woes have begun. The woes of Revelation, which is completely, completely out of place. It's not what the Bible prescribes. It's not what the Bible teaches about when these things will happen, how they will happen. And if you read your Bibles, you know this. It also, interestingly, it uses Old Covenant-style language even though we live in the New Covenant. What do you mean? It's pre-Jesus judgment. It's Old Testament-sounding judgment. But right now, right now, until that time of tribulation comes, gang, we live in the age of grace. 
God's primary method for drawing people to Him is not to say, you filthy sinner, repent! His primary message is, I went to the cross for you because I love you. Come and receive my grace. When we hear language like that, we go, oh, it must be legitimate because they said, whoa, three times in a row. And that sounds harsh and and judgmental as we know God to be. Listen, God in Christ Jesus is offering you His hand of grace. His nail-pierced hand of grace. That prophecy also refers to America as God's house. America has never been God's house. Israel is God's house. You are God's household. But America's not. Blessed nation, absolutely. Because we said, praise be to God. Because early on we acknowledged God to be the God over this nation. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But we're not God's house. And throughout this so-called prophecy, there are a lot of problems. Most notably, the name of Jesus is not mentioned a single time. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. And if it doesn't glorify Jesus, if it doesn't lift up Jesus, if it doesn't point us to Jesus, guess what? Probably not about Jesus. Well, I read these things and as you can tell, I get a little fired up. I get a little O'Reilly. A little angry. And I was feeling that way early this week. Monday, I opened up the Bible. Opened up to Psalm 37. And the Lord said, Do not fret. Thank you, Jesus. It was good to just read those words. I mean, they rolled off the page as spoken by the Spirit to my heart. Rick, do not fret. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. Don't fret. Now, if David were to leave a written legacy, you know, a will, a last will and testament, I believe Psalm 37 could very easily be it. And it's because of how it reads. And by the way, what's the definition of a will? You should know this. It's a dead giveaway. I know, I know. Pastor, bury those jokes. I get it. No one, no one thinks to get too grave around here. What's the matter? Spencer, casket your tongue? Rabbinical scholars, they believe that, you know, I just, I have to do it, and it's for me. Okay, the puns are for me. I've tried to explain this to Hannah. As she rolls her eyes, I say, look, it's just fun to see you disgusted. So what's going on. Rabbinical scholars believe that David wrote this psalm for his son Solomon. That he wrote it to say to Solomon, look, this is how to live. This is how to deal with life. You're about to, to take the throne. And I'm about to move on. And I want you to know these things. David definitely wrote it in older life. Verse 25 tells us, I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. And so old David gives young Solomon this psalm as a way to live, as a way to view life. And he begins it with these wonderful words, Do not fret. And you know what? Solomon, at least early on, heard it. Proverbs 24.19, he almost word for word quotes his dad David. He says, Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. Do not fret. The word fret in the Hebrew, kara, means to burn or to be kindled. To watch those shows and just... 
How many of you have ever yelled at your TV? A few of you have. Do not fret. Don't get all fired up. Don't allow your indignation to get stirred up. Paul said in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry, and yet do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Anger is one thing. But staying in that place, kindled up, burned up, frustrated, angry, that's not a good place to be. And the Lord says, don't stay there. Don't live in that place of fretting and worry and indignation. Because if you do, it will burn you out. It will burn you up and burn you out. Jesus said... We should expect these things in these last days. He said in Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Behold, Jesus says, I told you in advance. He says that toward the end of Matthew 24. I told you in advance. I'm telling you everything that's coming so that you know ahead of time. Revelation 14, 12 says, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Man, you are called to persevere. You are called to endure. But Paul says, realize this, 2 Timothy 3, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And Paul says, Timothy, avoid people like that. You avoid that. This is the way things are going to be. This is the world we're going to be living in. But along with all the warning that the Lord gives us, He sends out this comforting message, Do not fret. Lord, how do I not fret in a world like this? In an environment like this? How do I not get all wrapped around the axle? Well, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Listen, God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus. And the truth is, when things go down on the earth, we will already have gone up to heaven. When it gets bad here, when it hits its worst, when the apex of wrath and horror is here, if you are in Jesus, guess what? You will be there. The dead in Christ will rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So be comforted, brothers and sisters in Jesus. It may get bad here, but you're going there. Do not fret. In verse 2, about the evildoers, the wrongdoers, the wicked... He says, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Is this saying that we should hope that wrongdoers are going to get theirs? Is that kind of the point David's saying, hey, don't worry because bad people, they're going to get messed up. (laughs) It's going to be great. It's going to wipe them out. Yeah. It's not what he's saying. This is not a judgment of the wicked. It is a reality check for the righteous. What David is saying is, listen, you may have someone going after you. You may be having a problem right now with another person. There may be something, some kind of evil or wicked pressed against you right now. It's not going to last. It's not going to last. It will fade 
Like the grass fades. Like the herbs go brown and die. Wickedness will not last. Look down at verse 35 of the same chapter. David says, I've seen a wicked and violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. And then he passed away. And lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Why do we do that? Someone's giving you a hard time and then they seem to disappear out of your life and we go looking for them. <laughs> Wonder what happened to him. I haven't been stressed out in a while. Think I'll give him a call. <laughs> David. They'll wither, they'll go away. Let it go, man. Wickedness is going down. Righteous ones are going up. And it is an assurance for those who practice righteousness. Do not fret. Don't waste your energy on angry frustration. By the way, if you want to spend your energy in this life, in this world, there's a great place to do it. Practice righteousness. Practice righteousness. You know the whole reason, well not the whole reason, but a big part of the reason God gave us grace is so that we would no longer have to worry about attaining grace. I died for you, here's my grace, now you have salvation. What are you going to do with it? Practice righteousness. I don't practice righteousness to get saved. I practice righteousness because it's a good thing. Holy living is happy living. Holy living is whole living. We've talked about this recently. Doing good is is good. And that's what the Lord wants for you. Practice righteousness. Don't get saved by grace and then practice wickedness. Why would you do that? Practice righteousness. Put your energy into that. John said in 1 John 2.28, Now little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him and shame at His coming. If you know that He's righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Okay, so how do we do it? How do we practice righteousness in a world that is so wicked? Well, verse 3 says, Trust in the Lord. And there's your first step. I'll give you a six. Trust in the Lord is number one. Solomon heard, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, which means trust does not require all the facts. You don't have to understand. You don't have to know why. You just trust in the Lord. Trust says, Father, I take you at your word, even when I don't understand. Even if my life seems not to be working out the way I wanted it to, I'm going to trust in you, Lord. I trust you. Well, Rick, isn't that kind of stupid and blind? Yeah, if you didn't know God. If you didn't know the person who's asking for your trust, that would be a pretty stupid thing to do. You're walking down the street, you walk up to some total stranger and go, Dude, I trust you! Yeah! What do you want to do today? I mean, they'd think you were nuts. The Lord has given us 6,000 years, as we talked about a week or so ago, 6,000 years of faithfulness in which we can place our trust. He has shown Himself faithful. He has proven Himself time and time and time again. Shell and I are married 24 years next Monday. Woohoo! I trust her. Why, because she's nice? No, because she has proven herself faithful. Over 24 years, she has shown faithfulness. And, and I see that, and so I say, this is a woman I can trust. Now, a couple of years ago, I wasn't so sure. <laughs> Once I got to the 24 mark, I said, all right, I think she's proven herself now. 
That's what trust does. Trust shows itself. We place your tr- our cl- trust in somebody who has shown themselves faithful. And God has. Over and over. Now, Romans 8.28, a very popular verse among us Christian types. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Do you believe it? Because I fear that verse has been used so much that it's kind of taken on a little bit of a Christian cliché. That we almost say it, not sure we believe it. We, we apply it like some kind of pain ointment, like Neosporin. It's the Neosporin verse of the Bible. <laughs> Romans 8.28. You got a cut, you got a scab, you got a scar. You put the Neosporin of Romans 8.28 on it. You know, this is good. I know God causes all things to work together for good for those who love. I love you, Lord. Make it work. But in the heart of heart, we're going, yeah, but I'm not sure it's going to heal. What if it doesn't? What if I put my trust in the Lord and life doesn't get better? What if things don't work out the way I need them to work out? What if pain remains? How do I trust then? A guy by the name of J.L. Mackey wrote a famous essay called Evil and Omnipotence. And in this essay, he went about arguing against the existence of a good, wise, powerful God in whom people can trust. These were his primary arguments. He said... You say God is omnipotent. Okay, let's accept that. God's omnipotent, therefore, without limits as to what He can do. All-powerful. You say God is completely good. Holy good. Okay? Then good eliminates evil as far as it can. Isn't that the definition of good? And then he says, a good and powerful being eliminates evil completely. There's pain and evil in this world, therefore, there's no God. Omnipotent being has all power. Power, goodness, he's all good, eliminates evil, but there's evil. So therefore, there is no God. The problem with Mackey's essay is his conclusion is premature. Yes, Mackey, you're correct. God is omnipotent. Yes, God is wholly good. Yes, God will eliminate evil completely. But there's something this man misses. God is also merciful. God is also long-suffering. God is also patient. Not wishing, Peter said, for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And there was a time where if God had said, that's it, I'm done, wipe out evil, Pastor Rick would have been wiped out too. And so would you. Why hasn't he done it? Because he's looking at the world saying, I want to save you. I don't want to wipe you out. Practice righteousness. Come to my grace The question is not, will God pull me through this hard time? The question is, do I trust Him? Period. Regardless of what happens. Jesus said in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe God. Believe also in me. Do not fret. He's given us more than sufficient proof of His faithfulness, His trustworthiness, but trust always requires the dynamic of faith. You've got to have faith in the Lord. When I get to that place of trust where I say, Lord, I believe You're my Maker. I believe You're my Redeemer. So I will trust my life. I will entrust my life to You. I will entrust my family to You. I will entrust my provision to You. I will even give You my future, Lord. When you get to that place of trust and incredible peace will settle over you. 
Another famous verse, Philippians 4.6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You can't comprehend it. You may not understand it. But you put your trust in Him and He will be faithful. Trust in the Lord, David says. And do good. Now I separate that out as your second point here on practicing righteousness. Trust in the Lord and do good. Because in the Hebrew, the phrase do good is a command. Do good. David says to Solomon, his son, do good. The Lord says to you and to me, <laughs> do good. Oh, I didn't say it again. The little kid over there goes, do good. <laughs> Train him up young, man. Train him up young. Was that my kid? <laughs> David, David, do good. He's like, not now, Pops. Maybe later. Regardless of what anyone else is doing, in spite of the currents of culture, apart from the ways of the world, the Lord would say, do good. Just, just do good. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. What do you dwell on? What are you spending your time thinking about? It's so easy. It's so simple. It's so practical. Think about good stuff. Before you even do good, process, consider, be in good stuff. Right now, we're reading through the Little House books. Laura Ingalls Wilder. Reading them with Naomi every night at bedtime. And I can't wait. Last night, they made maples on the trees. It's just good. You know, it's just a good book about good times of people in faith living their lives. It's good stuff. And yet, we fill our minds with all kinds of garbage and trash and bad stuff, and we wonder why we're having trouble doing good. Dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul said. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You want peace? Do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. And number three, he says, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. I really like this one. Cultivate faithfulness. First off, dwell in the land. God has you where you are for a reason. Right where you are, in the job that you hate. God has you there right now. Dwell in the land. And the school that you're headed to, that you don't want to, God's got a plan. Go. Dwell in the land. In the house that you're in, or the city that you're in, or the life that you're living, I don't want to be where I am, Lord. Dwell in the land. And cultivate faithfulness. I love this because it's not talking about cultivating your faithfulness. I don't know about you, but for me, there's often not much seed to cultivate in my faithfulness. I like to make it grow, but there's just not much there. It's not about you. The word there for cultivate literally means to graze or feed on. Dwell in the land and feed on faithfulness. Dwell in the land and graze on His faithfulness. Again, 6,000 years of reason to trust Him. But David says, feed on His faithfulness now. Feed on His faithfulness today, this morning. Again, down in verse 25, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or His descendants begging bread. Feed on His faithfulness. 
Now I know, as I was reminded this week, I know there are some of you who have lost jobs in this climate. I know some of you have lost homes. I know some have lost securities and retirements. And I know even in America, as good as we have it, there are many people going through tough times. I get it. God gets it. But let me ask you this question. Has God been faithful to you today? Did you have the occasion for breakfast this morning? Did you have transportation to get to the barn today? Were you able to find yourself at any point between when you woke up and this moment right now, smiling? Did you meet someone in fellowship this morning? Do you have clothes on your back? And I'm looking around, I'm very thankful for this. (laughs) Thank God. Cultivate faithfulness. Feed on what He's doing right now. We're always looking out ahead, but I don't know what's going to happen when... Hey, feed on now. What has He given you today? Cultivate faithfulness. He Himself has said, Hebrews 13.5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. But I'm losing my house. Hey, maybe God doesn't want you in that house. Maybe that's not the best place. Yeah, but I can't. Cultivate faithfulness. Feed on His faithfulness to you. He has not forsaken you. He will not do it. How do you know that, Rick? Because He said He wouldn't. And he hasn't been wrong yet. Yeah, but I've seen children begging for bread. David says, I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants, his children, literally his seed, begging for bread. I have. In the streets of Calcutta, Bangladesh, the villages of Nepal, I have seen the pictures, man. And I have seen people begging for bread. So is David wrong? i got to address this. Two quick side notes. And this may not be politically correct. There is a direct correlation. Listen. There is a direct correlation between paganism and poverty. I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel, Scott. There is a direct correlation between paganism and poverty. If you've heard of the 1040 window, you know that this is an area referred to in missions... It's in the eastern hemisphere between 10 degrees and 40 degrees north of the equator. And this band called the 1040 window is the least churched, least Jesus region of the whole entire world. Less people believing in Jesus in that region than anywhere else on the planet. And it's called the 1040 window as a target area for missionaries to get the word of God, to get the name of Jesus into this region. But listen to this. Of the world's 3 billion poor, 82% reside in the 1040 window. 82% of the poorest of the poor, that's where they live. 84% of the world's lowest quality of life, that's lifespan, literacy, medicine, infant mortality, right there in the 1040 window. And it is the hub of the world's major non-Christian religions. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, animism, paganism of all kinds, atheism, and we here in America are trying so desperately to bring all this into our country. But my friends, paganism and poverty are connected. Because when people reject the hand that feeds them, they're going to get hungry. Well, this bothers me that you're saying this, Rick. I mean, we need to have compassion. Great. If this tugs at your heart, the second thing to note is, hear the words of Jesus. 
The apostles come to him and they say in Luke chapter 9, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat for we're in a desolate place. And Jesus said, you feed them. Huh? You feed them. Lord, I got like a buck twenty-five. You feed him. Hey, this kid's got a sack lunch. Right. You feed him. Do you realize how ridiculous that miracle was? Absolutely ridiculous. That the apostles would even come up with a sack lunch. You know, you feed him. Okay. Not much, but we'll take care of the first guy in the front row. And Jesus says, great, pass it out. And everybody gets fed. Why didn't Jesus just do it? Why did He say to the apostles, you feed Him? Because that's always uh, Jesus' focus for us. Yeah, Jesus could feed the world, but He's calling on you. He's calling on me and saying, feed Him. And you're sitting here feeding and cultivating uh, faithfulness. As you feed on faithfulness, take it to those who need it. You got a problem with the fact that paganism and poverty goes hand in hand? Then you take Jesus and you take food to someone who needs both. You notice that Jesus in his life always offered healing before, or, or sorry, forgiveness before healing. Lord, heal me! Your sins are forgiven. Huh? Because that's what I need to do first. And we'll take care of the other. But it's forgiveness. It's Jesus' people need. Give them something to eat. Well, verse 4 going on. Trust in the Lord, number one. Do good, number two. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness, number three. Number four, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Absolutely key, one of the best verses in the whole Bible. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Does that really work? Absolutely. Delight yourself in the Lord. Look down at verse 23. It says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Now there's an interesting thing. It says, He delights, indicating the Lord delights in his way, indicating man's way. The Lord delights in man's way. But it wasn't, we don't have capitals there in the Hebrew. It could go any direction. In other words, it could be that God delights in man's way if man delights in him. Or it could be that man delights in God's way. Or it could be that God delights in God's way. Or it could be that man delights in man's way when he delights in the Lord. It doesn't matter. It all works. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. When do we ever get the mindset that God wants to deny His children? Where's Annalise? Is she in here? Or she? There you are. So we're talking. I'm going to put you on the spot here, girl. And she was trying to make college choices. And she knew the college she wanted to go to. Desperately. This is the one. I, just, I know. But what if God doesn't want me to go there? What if He wants me to go to that one? And I just, I, it was so funny to me because I was thinking, you know, I have had, I have had that mindset all the time myself. Well, if there's a tougher choice, a harder choice, an uglier choice, that's going to be the one God wants for me. Why? Why do we think that? Delight yourself in the Lord. Love God. Pour your heart out to Him. And guess what? Your heart's desire, He's going to give it to you. How do you know that, Rick? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 11, If you then, knowing, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? You're evil, and you know how to do good for your kids. You're driving down the road. Your son says, Hey, Dad, could I get a Slurpee? So where do you take him? 7, 11. Matthew 7.11 It's a great correlation. 
I know how to give a slurpee to my son. I know how to give good gifts. I'm an evil dude and I still know how to give good things to my kids. And Jesus says, if you can do that, you don't, what, you don't think that your heavenly Father can do better than that? You give your son a slurpee, Luke's version says, he'll give you the Holy Spirit. Slurpee Spirit. <laughs> One refreshes in the immediate. The other refreshes forever. As rivers of living water flowing out of the heart. I know, how does, how does 7-11 work? But that's, that's Matthew 7-11. Maybe you'll remember it now. Next time you drive by at 7-11, you go, I'm going to get a slurpee. No, I'm going to ask for the Holy Spirit. Even better. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, James 1.17. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. But listen, the way to a man's heart is not his stomach. It is not our desire. It's not, no, I really want the newest Taylor guitar. So I'm going to delight myself in the Lord and get it. (laughs) No, that's delighting in the Taylor guitar and asking God for it. Totally different thing. Delight yourself in the Lord and suddenly the things you desire... Well, Augustine put it this way. I don't always agree with Augustine, but on this, he's dead on. Someone was asking Augustine, how can we know what God's will is? And he rightly answered, love God with all of your heart and then do whatever you want. Because if you love God with your whole heart, your desires will be aligned with His. And what you want will be what He wants, which is, by the way, what you wanted in the first place. You just didn't know it. And it's good, and it's perfect. Paul says in Philippians 2.13, It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So, before we start trying to draw the Lord into our plans, just delight in Him. How do you practice righteousness? Delight yourself in the Lord. Just love Him. Worship Him. Give Him your whole heart. Thank Him. Delight in the Lord. He goes on, verse 5. This is number 5 in the list. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will do it. Commit your way to the Lord. Commit your way. How do I do that? What exactly is that? The Hebrew word for commit there, it literally means to roll off. Roll it off to the Lord. Now, in the last uh, last week or two, Naomi and David and I have gotten into this great game of just playing ball on the floor in our living room. I sit down there, and David sits in my lap, and Naomi sits about ten feet away. You parents, you know what I'm talking about. And we've got the rubber balls, we've got the Mickey Mouse ball and the Minnie Mouse ball, and we're rolling them back and forth. You know, and I'll tell you what, I'm 45 years old, and there are a few things I love more than sitting on the hard floor and playing ball. I'm being facetious. Not a big sit-on-the-floor-and-play-ball guy. Okay? It hurts. My knees get achy. You know, we're throwing the ball, but they have a blast. They're having a great time. They're rolling the ball back and forth. Why then, Rick, if you don't like it, do you do it? Because I love them. And because it's all about relationship. David snuggled up right against me as we're throwing the balls back and forth. And it's relationship, and it's fun, and it's joy, and it's dad-kid time. And yes, it was easier 20 years ago to get down on the floor and play Legos than it is now. But no less important and no less significant. Why are you telling us this? Commit your way to the Lord. Roll it to Him. And you know what He does? He rolls it back to you. I commit to you, Father. I commit to you, Son. 
I commit to you, Father. I, I commit to you, daughter. I commit to you. I commit. And it back and forth it goes. But sometimes, sometimes in the rolling, we get bonked on the head. It'll happen. David loves it when Naomi gets bonked on the head. <laughs> Throw the ball and dink, and off it goes. Ah, he just you know cracks up. Loves it. And sometimes we'll get hurt when we're playing, when we're tussling, when we're messing around, having fun. Remember back what the psalmist wrote would be mockingly said to Jesus. Psalm 22, verse 8. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. And that's what the Pharisees said to Jesus on the cross. Oh, commit yourself. See if He throws the ball back to you. Commit yourself. Roll it off on Him. Let's see what's going to happen. And Jesus did. He rolled His way onto the Lord. He committed to the Lord. Luke 23, 46, He cried out, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. I roll it all onto You. And what did the Lord do for Jesus who rolled it to Him in commitment? God turned around and rolled away the stone. His commitment to Jesus. As fierce as Jesus' commitment to Him. And the righteousness of Jesus, look at this next verse, verse 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your noonday, or your judgment as the noonday. And the righteousness of Jesus came forth as a light. His judgment as the noonday, as he was resurrected. God did not fail in his commitment to Jesus, who committed himself to the Lord in this rolling relationship of commitment. But understand, and young people especially get this. The way of commitment to ultimate joy will take you through the cross. You will go through the hard stuff to get to the other side of the joy. You will get bonked on the head. There will be occasional struggle and pain. Jesus knew that. The apostles knew that. The martyrs of faith down through the centuries, up to and including the massive number, 500 I believe, of our Christian brothers and sisters who were massacred in Nigeria just a couple months back. Why were they massacred? Because they were Christians. You may go through hard times. I'll guarantee you, not a single one of those 500 who lost their lives, chopped and hacked by radical Muslims, not a one of those who lost their lives is lacking in the Lord's commitment to them right now. Roll your way on to the Lord. He will roll that commitment right back to you. He promises to do it. And verse 7. And perhaps the most important of the whole list, rest. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. No, rest in the Lord. Psalm 46, verse 10 says, Cease striving and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Cease striving. Rest. Relax. Be still. Settle down. Quiet. Hush. And rest is it's one of the most overlooked components to fretless living of any on the list that we've looked at. Trusting and, and dwelling in the land, doing good, cultivating faithfulness, delighting yourself in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord. These are all great action steps. And rest. Now please understand, we need to get this. Without rest, we are most vulnerable. When we are tired, when we are weary, when we are stressed out, when we are fretting, we are most vulnerable spiritually. 
Friday night, my precious little two-year-old son kept Cheryl and I up all night long. Every couple of hours. <coughs> okay, you gonna go? No, I, I, you go. Okay. And the worst, you know, parents, you understand this that when the child is crying downstairs and the wife goes, the husband just lies there feeling guilty. <laughs> but you don't want to go because she wakes you up. But then you go, and the wife lies there feeling guilty. So whether you go or not, it stinks. Okay. <coughs> so we have to go. Take care. Get to sleep. Come back up all night long. And then Friday morning, I had to drive to Bellingham to pick up Anna Marie and Cheryl had to drive down to Seattle actually further down to McCord Air Force Base and then all the way back up and I was a little worried about her driving all that way you know what it's like you get behind the wheel and you're just fighting it you know trying to stay awake and I'm calling Cheryl like every half hour hey you awake yes I'm awake okay just checking and I'd hang up you know and it's good okay we're awake now It's frustrating, it's difficult when you are weary, you are vulnerable. And Jesus and the boys, they had just finished the Passover meal that night. Matthew 26, verse 36 tells the story. It had been a tough week. All week long, the apostles there with Jesus in Jerusalem. And Jesus is being tested and quizzed and challenged. And he's standing up to it, and it's marvelous. And, and all day, from morning to evening, they're there in Jerusalem. In the evenings, they're going over the Mount of Olives, back to Mary and, and uh, Martha and Lazarus' home to rest. And they're coming back over, and some nights they didn't make it back. They just stayed on the Mount of Olives. But they're tired, and they're weary, and they are especially, the apostles are stressed out. Because they've just sat through a Passover meal unlike any they'd ever experienced. This is my blood, Jesus said. Huh? Here's my body. What? I'm going to die, guys. We're on the verge of it. It's going to happen. And this man that they loved, they delighted in, that they had adored three years walking with him, day in and day out, they're going, what? No, no, I don't understand. And they're weary, and they're exhausted, and they're tired, and they're frustrated, and they're fretting. And Jesus came with them into a place called Gethsemane and said to His disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. So he goes a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again. He went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And he came to the disciples and and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up! Let's be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. What was their problem? They were weary. They were exhausted. They were emotionally spent. They were worried. They weren't resting. They were sleeping. Wait, right here, Peter. Keep watch. Okay, Lord, go pray. And he's out. 
And Jesus comes back, yeah, I get it, Peter. I know your spirit's willing. I know how much you want to serve and stay with me, but your flesh is weak. Okay, yeah. All right, Lord. Good to go. And he's right out. You know, I may be in love with the Lord, but if I'm fretting rather than resting in Him, I will be vulnerable. I'll burn out with weariness. When we worry, when we fret, when we freak out over the circumstances of our life, our flesh gets weak. And your spirit may be strong. You may say, I love the Lord. I've given the Lord my life. And great people have given the Lord their lives only to fall in in horrible ways that they never could have imagined they would fall when they were weary. Jennifer Knapp finished touring as a Christian artist in 2001. The last year of her touring, she had 250 concerts out of 365 days that she had to perform. That's stupid. It's ridiculous. Christian record company sending her out like that. Who was standing there going, wait a minute, she's going to get weary. Wait a minute, she's going to become vulnerable. She quits. She goes, just starts touring the world. And and now, we come to find out, five years later, she's been in this lesbian relationship. And I'm not saying it's the whole problem, but part of the problem is she got weary and wiped out and sick of the whole thing. And when she walked away, she was vulnerable. The apostles were weary and they were worried that night and so not ready to face what was about to hit. They didn't know what was coming. They just expected something dreadful. Here's the difference with you and me. We know what's coming and we can expect something glorious. Something wonderful. Look one more time at the word there. Psalm 37, 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. You know what that word is? Patiently, it's longingly. It's not just be patient. It's long for Him. Rest in the Lord. Take the time to be still. Are you talking physically, Rick? Yes. If you don't have a day off in seven at least, rest. You younger men especially, will you stop on the path to success thinking that if you work harder and spend all your hours and your energy that somehow you're going to get the success you hope for? No, you're going to end up wiped out and you might lose your wife and kids over it. Rest. Dude, take a day off. Go to the park. Play with your kids. Rest. Or you will be weary. Wait longingly for Him. And Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Rest and wait longingly for the Lord. Trust the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land. Cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to Him. Trust also in Him and He will do it. And rest in the Lord. Those are keys for practicing righteousness. Keys for fretless living. And He's coming soon, isn't He? Let's pray. Father, my prayer to You this morning is that we would enter into delight. That we individually would rest in You. In our families, we would be at peace in You. That we would pass along trust and feeding on faithfulness. That we will be those who, Father, say, regardless of what the nation or the culture or the world is doing, I will practice righteousness.
Lord, we may get it wrong from time to time. We know we will still stumble. We will still sin. We will still fall, but we also know we will not fall headlong. You will grab us. And so we pray, Lord. Teach us to delight in You and to choose righteousness, goodness, holiness as we walk with You, Lord Jesus. And it's in Your name we pray. Amen.